Psalm 28, so open there with me if you're not there already. This is a Psalm of David, and uh, let's read through it together, then we'll begin just to set things up and then take this verse by verse. Just, I think, a lot of application, much to glean from here, great encouragements, and so forth. So notice here, a Psalm of David. To you I will cry, O Lord, my rock, do not be silent to me, lest if you were silent, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you, when I lift my hands towards your holy sanctuary. Verse 3. Do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity, who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their heart. Give them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them according to the works of their hands. Render to them what they deserve, because they do not regard the works of the Lord nor the operation of his hands. He shall destroy them and not build them up. Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplications. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Therefore my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song I will praise him. The Lord is their strength, and he is the saving refuge of his anointed. Save your people, and bless your inheritance. Shepherd them also, and bear them up forever. We can see very clearly that David is writing this psalm, he is singing this psalm as the Holy Spirit moved upon him to pen this scripture in the midst of a trial. And if you go and you read 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, you read in Chronicles about the life of David, you will read about him going through many trials. You'll read about him going through trials as a youth, through trials as a young man, trials you know, as, a, as a man, and even trials towards the end before he went to go to be with the Lord. Some of those were trials of perfection, and some of those as well were trials of correction. And one thing that we know in this life, we are going to go through trials as well. Some of those will be trials of perfection, as he said he would be faithful to complete the work that he began. And some of those as well will be trials of correction, because one of the evidences of our, va- of our, of our faith in the grace of God bestowed upon us is we have a Father who loves us, and a father who loves his children not only lavishes his love upon them, but there's times when he corrects his children. In fact, Jesus said in John 16, he says, these things I have spoken to you, that, that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So the Lord says, you, he doesn't say you might have tribulation, you could, he says you will have it. You're going to have trials. They're going to come along in life. So with that said, listen, the question isn't, and the question shouldn't be, will we have trials? But the question needs to be, what are we going to do in that trial, and who are we going to cry out to in that trial? And this psalm that we just read that we are going to go through verse by verse, we see David, first and foremost, crying out to the Lord. And then we see him taking an eternal perspective to this trial that he is in. He begins to look at, you know, at the end product of everything that is happening. He doesn't just stay focused on the here and now, but begins to see the bigger picture. And then as he lays the burden before the Lord, he begins to rejoice in answered prayer as God hears the cries of his people. So notice here, back up in verse 1, he says, To you I will cry, O Lord my rock, do not be silent to me, lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. And listen, in the midst of trials, in the midst of tribulation, we are all going to cry out. But the question is, who are we going to cry out to? 
Are we just going to cry out to ourselves, whether it is verbally crying out or just in our heart crying out? Because listen, we're going to think about these things as we go through them. Are we going to just cry out to other men and seek answers from other people? Or are we going to cry out to the Lord? And then as we cry out, are we going to cry out with a heart of pride or a heart of self-pity? Are we going to cry out just with a complaining, it's not fair type of attitude? Or are we going to cry out to the Lord with humble supplication? And notice here, the first words of this psalm, David says, to you I will cry, O Lord, my rock. And what we see here is David encouraging himself in the Lord to humbly cry out to the Lord. And it's fascinating how many times in the Psalms and in the life of David where we see him encouraging himself to seek after the Lord God in the midst of trials, in the midst of tribulations, in the midst of persecutions. One of these places is found in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And if you get time later on today or this week, I encourage you to go back and read this. Because David is in the midst of a trial of correction in this case. David had been out in the wilderness and it's Nearing the end of that time, though David didn't knew that, and he kind of came to the conclusion that this is my, you know what, plight, I'm going to be out here, though God had told him eventually he'd be king, but he began to waver in trusting God and those promises, and he finds himself, before he knows it, in the enemy camp, in the Philistines camp, and he's in a place where he's committing to go out in battle with the Philistines against the nation of Israel. Now, God intervenes in the midst of all of this. And God prevents it from happening. But while David is away there in the army you know, of the Philistines, we read about the Amalekites coming in and taking captive all the women and children. So upon returning to the camp, again, there's a great cry because the women and the children have been taken captive. And then the very men that had come out to David over the past 10 years. We read about one of the occasions in the cave of Adullam where it says all that were in debt discontented and despaired came out to David. And it's a picture of us when we came to Christ. David ministered to them and build, build them men up and so forth. But they're in the place in the midst of all of this happening where they begin to talk about killing David. They're talking about stoning David. You talk about a great trial. But in the midst of this, in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, it says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And so we see here David saying, to you I will cry out, O Lord, here in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, but David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. And listen, there's a great, great truth here that we need to know. You need to hear this this morning. Listen, the preacher that you're going to listen to the most in your life, are you ready for this? You need to brace yourself for this. The preacher who you're going to hear more than anybody else, listen, it's not going to be Pastor Steve. It's not going to be, you know what, maybe you're a through the Bible man or woman. You listen to Jay Vernon McGee. Maybe you've gone on the Bible bus five times through. It's not going to be him. It's not going to be whoever, you know what, books you read or whatever else, those different authors. The preacher that you're going to listen to more than anyone else in your life. Are you ready for this? Are you, are you, are you braced? Are, are, you, are you prepared? The preacher that you're going to listen to more than anyone else in your life is yourself. You are preaching to yourself continually. And let me ask you, what kind of sermons are you preaching to yourself? We are going to preach sermons to ourselves that are going to be based on what are we sowing in our hearts, the company we keep, and whether or not we take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ through the word of God. Jesus said this in John 15, 7, if you abide in me, 
Notice here, and my words abide in you. And his words abiding in us is the scriptures, again, being that filter that we filter everything through when we are going through things and all the things that come our way in life. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. And so listen, is God's word abiding in our hearts? And God's word is very clear. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. That's God's word declaring that the word of God is his word. It's given by inspiration as God moved upon men. And this is why Jesus always used the scriptures as his point of authority in dealing with men and absolutely preaching about the kingdom of God. So all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And this is why it's so important that we're abiding in the Lord and an evidence of that is that his word abides in us. And as we go through things in life, we are preaching to ourselves the word of God. We're going back to the truth of the scriptures. We are filtering the things that raise themselves up against the knowledge of God through the word of God. And 2 Corinthians chapter 10 speaks of us taking those thoughts captive that would raise themselves up against the truth of the scriptures. And listen, David again is in this place. This trial is going on and basically he's drawing a line in the sand and he's telling himself in the midst of this, I'm going to cry out to the Lord. To you I'm going to cry out. He's preaching this to himself as he's saying it to the Lord. Uh, Listen, there's all these temptations to go over here or to run over here first and foremost. Now, again, God can work through people and God will give us direction as we cry out to him. But David is being determined here and he's telling himself, I'm going to cry out to the Lord. He is the one that I am going to look to in the midst of all of this. In fact, we'll read the word supplications twice here. And we'll read multiple times about him crying out to the Lord. And listen, there is great comfort and there is great reason to draw the line in the sand in the midst of whatever we're going through and say, I will cry out to the Lord. Because notice he says here, I will cry out, O Lord, my rock. Jesus Christ is the rock. And hear this, all other ground is sinking sand. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 16 15. He's talking to the disciples. He says, and he's asking them, who do men say that I am? And this, is, this happens in uh, um, um, Caesarea Philippi. Again, uh, Lord willing, in, in the fall, Israel's trip will go to this place. It's a phenomenal, I mean, you talk about the landscape illustrating what the Lord is teaching. I don't got time to go into that, but he's asking, who do men say that I am? And it says, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then he says, I say to you that you are Peter. And you know what Peter means in the Greek? It means a little bitty tiny pebble. You are a pebble. And he says here on this rock, and rock means Petra, a mass of rock. You are a pebble, but on this rock, And the rock that he's referring to is the profession of Peter's faith. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. On that truth, he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. That is the rock of Christ Jesus. We cry out to the rock 
who the gates of hell themselves cannot prevail against. Why would we cry out to anyone else? So this is a confidence. I will cry out to the Lord, my rock, because the gates of hell that the church is built on, and it's built on, again, the truth that Christ died and rose from the grave, that he is the son of God on the Lord, that truth, his word, the gates of hell themselves will not prevail. He wants us to cry out with a confidence, knowing that we are crying out to the Lord of lords, the king of kings, and the rock that will never be moved, and the rock that absolutely goes like this, and listen, the gates of hell falter. And then he says here, do not be silent to me, lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. And he's saying here, listen, I cry out to you, O Lord, my rock, and don't be silent, because if you're silent, then I'm like an unbeliever. Those that reject the Lord, those that shun the word of God, those that shun the scripture all the days of their life, and they end up when it's all said and done in the pit separated from God because God honors their decision to refuse him. And I'll tell you, individuals that don't know the Lord, that come to God, you know, with a chip on their shoulder, that come to God testing him, that come to God wanting God to do what they want done to appease, you know, their carnal appetites, God doesn't hear those prayers. That's clear throughout the scriptures. Now, someone that doesn't know him, that begins to respond to the call of the Spirit of God and humble their hearts and so forth, that's a far different thing. But he's talking about the one who goes down to the pit. And he says, as I cry out to you, don't be silent to me like an unbeliever. Now, notice here in verse 2, he says, hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you, when I lift my hand towards your holy sanctuary. And notice here the word supplications. He doesn't say, hear my supplication, but he says, hear my supplications. And the second time, he says, when I cry out to you, the first time in verse 1. And what we see here, again, is fervent prayer. It's not David just praying about this trial that he is in as these individuals oppress him. And no doubt, as we read the context here, some of these individuals were posing as men of righteousness who weren't because they appeared to be one thing and they were something else in their heart. And in the midst of all of this, David doesn't just say, well, let me pray about this. I'll cry out to the Lord, then I'll go do my own thing. But it's a picture of fervent prayer. It's a picture of supplications. It's a picture of David saying, listen, the only person that can do something about this is God Almighty. So I'm going to bombard heaven's throne with my prayers and I'm going to cry out to him over and over again. I'm going to pray as if only he can do anything about it because only he can do anything about it. A fervent prayer. And in the midst of trials, even in the midst of life, we got to remember, listen, God holds all this together. And he's the only one ultimately that can do anything about anything. And that fervent prayer is that knowledge that, again, God is God and only he ultimately can help. Even if he works through a situation, it's him that is doing the work. Notice as well, he says, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. One thing we need to know and understand, that listen, fervent prayer should be seen sometimes externally. Now again, we shouldn't go around judging things by outward appearances. God doesn't do that. God looks upon the heart. But there should be some times, especially in the, in the midst of trials and tribulations, where we get into a you know what, a, a, a posture that is humble before him. 
Or we just say, Lord, I need you, and I, I'm going to literally lift my hands to you and cry out to you, Lord. We see this with Hannah when she had the longing for a child that no doubt the Lord had put there, that she would come to the place of dedicating that child to the service of the Lord. But in the temple there, she's down on her face, prostrate. She's down weeping and so forth. And the fervency of her prayer is seen in her position and her posture. We talked about in Exodus when the Amalekites come and he attack Moses. And he goes up there to the mountain as Joshua fights down in the valley. And his prayers and his fervency is seen as he raises hands up. And his hands are up, they prevail. And when they're down, they don't. But it was seen in his hands. And listen, in the scripture in 2 Timothy 2, it talks about the Lord being a mediator, the only mediator between man and God, and God's desire for all men to come to know him. And then in verse 8, he says, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And sometimes our outward posture is an indicator of where our heart is. Again, this isn't here, this isn't fodder for us to go around and be judging someone while they're just sitting there, so they must not be worshipful. And they're like, oh, I'm standing in my heart though, so don't judge me. It's not this. But let's look at our lives. If we are fervently praying, listen, there's an occasional call to get on your face before the Lord. Or to go out and lift your hands up to him and say, Lord, we need you. I'm crying out to you. I think they can help coach us up and preach to us that, listen, we need to cry out to him. And sometimes, physically, we need to see ourselves doing that. And plus, he says, lift up holy hands. Well, that's figuratively, not literally. He's literally saying, I desire men everywhere to lift up holy hands. Can we take him at his word? And then notice he says, I will lift up my hands towards your holy sanctuary. And listen, this is being prayed in context, in conjunction of what Jesus taught us how to pray there in Matthew 6, 9. He says, in this manner, therefore, pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Or I'm looking to you in heaven. I'm asking for your will in heaven to be done here upon earth. I'm not crying out to you saying, God, this is the situation, so you need to do A, B, C, and D according to my plan. Good thing we don't ever do that, right? But it's him instead saying, I'm crying out to your throne. I want your will to be done in this situation. And listen, his will is so much better than our will. And we're reminded there in Isaiah 55, 8, my thoughts are you're not your thoughts, the Lord says, nor are my ways, nor are your ways my ways. And I say, thank you, Lord, for that. And then he says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And then notice verse 3. He says, do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their heart. And David now moves from crying out to the Lord to begin to step back and look at the situation with an eternal perspective. He says, don't take me with the way of the wicked. And again, these are the individuals in this trial that are coming against him. They're workers of iniquity. These are individuals that they're not about the business of God, but they're about their own business. They're about the business of sinning. And listen, this doesn't just include murderers and liars and adulterers, but this would be the individual that worships all the blessing that God has given to them versus the blesser. They refuse to acknowledge the Lord. They refuse to acknowledge the works of the hands of God, but they want to acknowledge the works of their own hands. Even, you know, and that's sinful, even if those hands, according to man's standard, are good. But if God is not in it, it is rebellion. And so he says, don't take me the way of the wicked. 
don't take me the way of the workers of iniquity. And I think this is twofold. It's saying, listen, don't take me according to their counsel. I don't want to team up with these people that don't acknowledge you to get counsel from them. And I don't want to walk and respond to a trial the way that they walk. And it's also no doubt saying, I don't want to end up where they are going because of their unbelief. I think this is summarized quite well in Psalm chapter 1. It's six verses, but I think it's great commentary on verse 3 here. Follow along with me and just drink this in and consider it. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And in the midst of all this, David, again, is getting an eternal perspective. My time here is short, and these individuals that are workers of iniquity, they are going to perish I don't want to walk in their way. I want to stay near to the Lord, even though there's temptation to do things their way. He also says about these people, he says they speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. So in other words, there's a striving to look good good outwardly, but inwardly they are corrupt. And it seems that the context of this would be individuals that are posing to be friends of David, posing to be friends of the Lord, but actually, there's an evil agenda. And the Bible speaks about this. Wolves and sheep's clothing and heretics and so forth. And it seems that that's what David is dealing with here. Now, we want to be a people that don't walk in that ourselves. Listen, in the midst of crying out to him, we want to be honest with the Lord. We don't want to be in a place where outwardly we are just wanting to look godly. But inwardly, we're wanting to lay it all down before him. We want to get, again, corruption out of our life versus being corrupt internally and just being concerned with how we are perceived before men. Because ultimately, what's the matter what people think about you? At the end of the day, the only thing that matters is what God thinks about us. And listen, God sees the inner man. God sees the heart. We can put forth a front, but God knows what's going on inwardly. In fact, 1 Samuel 16, 17, for man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's, you know what, if we're going to be honest, kind of a frightening thought. But there's a remedy for that. And crying out to the Lord, we want to be honest before the Lord. We want to be open before the Lord. We want to pray that prayer that David prayed in Psalm 139, 23. He says, search me, O God, know and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. When I quote that verse, and it's me not wanting to take away from, not trying to take away from the word or add to it. But when I pray that to the Lord, I always pray, search me, O God, and know me. Try me, know me, make your thoughts. And I don't pray, see if there's any wicked way in me. I say, Lord, see the wicked ways in me. See them. Because I know who I am outside of you. And I know how vulnerable I am to the wicked way. See them in me and lead me out of them into the way everlasting. I don't want to be fake with you, God. I don't want to be phony with you. I don't want to get on my knees and pretend I'm prostrate before you. Lord, I want you to come in and cleanse me. I don't want to walk in the way of the wicked, which is a way of hypocrisy. And then verse 4, he says, give them according to their deeds. 
and according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them according to the work of their hands. Render to them what they deserve. And what we see David doing now, again, he's, he's prayed, I don't want to walk in their way. And now what we see David doing is he's persecuted by these people. We see him committing, him, committing these people to the Lord. Lord, you deal with them. Lord, you give them according to their ways, according to their wickedness, according to the work of their hands. Give them what they deserve. And I'll tell you, when you're going through a trial where you are being uh, afflicted by others, and we've all gone through those trials, haven't we? And listen, if the scripture says, any who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, they're going to suffer persecution. There is a temptation for us to take that burden on ourselves. There's a temptation for us to begin to long for justification, uh, to long, you know what, to, to have justice served here on earth and so forth. And that's not a healthy place to be. We want to commit these people to the Lord because hear this this morning. They are better off in the hands of the Lord than in your heart. Did you hear that? Those individuals that, you know what, may be coming against you or will be coming against you. And for whatever reason, they're better off being committed to the hands of God than you carrying them around in your heart. Because if you do, you're going to be victimized over and over and over again. And on top of that, nothing good's going to come out of that. They need to be committed to the Lord. And then again, David is reminding himself as he prays to the Lord that there's a judgment on these people. They don't acknowledge the works of the hands of God, which we'll look at more here in a minute in verse 5, but they just want to acknowledge the works of their own hands. And how sad is that? Because listen, God gave us these hands, right? And everything we work with these hands, you know what, is a gift from God as well. Whether that's good or evil and what we're doing with that gift is another thing. But how sad to be given these hands and giving even material we can work with these hands, but we don't want to acknowledge the hand of God who gave it all. And it just really shows the depravity of man and the blindness of man. And it's so sad how many people, again, they're so focused on the little things in their hand. And listen, the richest man in the world, it's nothing compared to, again, eternity with the Lord. He says, what's a profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And yet we even read in the book of Revelation, in the midst of trials and tribulation and wrath being poured out on the earth, it says in Revelation 9.20, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. Man, that's a frightening verse. To be so blinded where we are just going to be fixated on the works of our hands which are temporary and we're going to shun the hands of God and David is saying, give them what they deserve. And what they deserve is his wrath. And listen, outside of Jesus Christ, you know what we deserve? The exact same thing, wrath. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Can we praise God for mercy this morning? And even in the midst of this, in the midst of David praying this, in the midst of these people being under the judgment of God, they were still being blessed with the mercy of God even as David was praying this. Because every day given here is an opportunity to call upon the name of the Lord. And I touched on this last week a bit, but it's a great truth we need to take to heart. As God gives grace and mercy, if we don't take that grace and mercy and the opportunity we have to come to him, to trust in him, to live our lives for him. If we abuse that grace and mercy, listen, there is a certain judgment that's stored up in that. This is really clear in scripture. In Matthew 11, Jesus declares woes on different cities. 
One of them is Capernaum. And he declares a woe on them that they will never be inhabited again because he says if the things that were done in these cities had been done in Sodom, they would have all repented. God showed them a greater mercy than he showed those in Sodom because the Son of God was in these cities and yet they rejected him. And he says it's going to be more tolerable for those in Sodom than for you on that day of judgment because they shunned the mercy of God Almighty. And amazingly, listen, those cities, they're still inhabited to this day. And if you go to Israel, you can see the ruins. It's the Lord's prophetic word coming to fruition even 2,000 years later. Now notice verse 5, he says, Because they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the operation of His hands, He shall destroy them and not build them up. Again, David taking an eternal perspective about what is unfolding, about this trial that he's in. And again, they don't want to repent from the works of their hands. And at the same time, they don't regard the works of the Lord or the works of his hands. And how ironic, again, they themselves are a work of God. And God creating them and knitting them in their mother's wombs and giving them life and opportunity and breath in their lungs and everything else. And yet Psalm 10.3 says, For the wicked boast of his heart's desire, he blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not see God. God is in none of his thoughts. And David's reminding himself of that. And I think for, for us, it gives perspective to us. If the trial is, is based on people that don't acknowledge the Lord persecuting you or just behaving as sinners behave, we need to remember, listen, God's in none of their thoughts. So I want to commit them to the Lord. I want to understand, listen, if they die in that sin, they're going to be under eternal condemnation. That should be enough to appease, you know what, my anger, right? But listen, more than that, and the greater focus for us needs to be, if they die in that sin, if they don't acknowledge the works of the Lord, They're going to be under eternal destruction where they're never destroyed, but they're in the process of it where the fire is never quenched and the worm that eats the flesh never ceases in eating it. So, Lord, stir my heart to have an eternal perspective. These people need you. They need to be born again. They're doing all this against me, and boy, I am tempted to come back at them with a hatred But I want to commit them to you, and I want to understand they're going to be destroyed and not built up if they refuse to acknowledge the operation of your hands, who made them, who created them, and your hands that were pierced for them. Isaiah 49, 6, the Lord says, See, I have inscribed you in the palm of my hands, and your walls are continually before me. This speaks of individuals that reject the work of the cross, the works of his hands. And the greatest works of his hands, again, is when they were pierced for us. People that say, I don't want to acknowledge the work of the cross. I don't need the work of the cross. I don't want to be forgiven. I don't want to be washed. I want to do my own thing according to the works of my hands, my endeavors, my ways, day after day, God giving them mercy and them not seeing it. Them confusing God's mercy for God doesn't see, God doesn't hear, I'll never give an account. What a frightening thing. We need to pray that they will acknowledge the works of the hands of the Lord, amen? Now notice in verse six, the psalm again goes into the next phase. He says, blessed be the Lord because he has heard the voice of my supplications. 
And again, the Lord hears the prayers of his people when they humbly approach him through the work of the cross. Isaiah 66, verse 2, but on this one I will look on him who is poor and contrite in spirit, who trembles at my word. And David is rejoicing now because the Lord has heard the voice of his supplication. He doesn't say, because you've answered my prayers. Now, again, the Lord's going to answer our prayers when they're brought before him, again, in a right manner, a humble manner. He's going to answer them in his way according to his timing. David's rejoicing, though, because the Lord has heard his supplications. And that's a wonderful thing. That's a picture of even in the midst of the trial, I can rejoice because God is the rock and the rock has heard my supplication. So I have taken my burden and now I have cast it upon the Lord and he cares for me so I don't need to be burdened anymore because he has heard my prayers. He has heard my cries. He has heard my supplications. But that only starts, that only comes when we first cry out to him. When we preach to our hearts, listen, I'm drawing a line in the sand and I'm gonna cry out to the Lord. Not about this, but I'm gonna cry through this. I'm going to lift up not supplication, but supplications to him. And listen, it's a wonderful place. Perhaps it's probably not a place we wish to be, but it's probably one of the most wonderful places to be when you're in the midst of a tidal wave type trial and you've called out to the Lord and you have that confidence that the Lord knows and I've laid it at his feet. In fact, notice verse 7, it says, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song, I will praise him. And so again, the trial came, David cried out to the Lord, and God was faithful to hear his prayers, and God was faithful to help him. And one thing we need to keep in mind, amongst many, but another thing we need to keep in mind, is listen, trials are an opportunity for us to see firsthand the glory of the Lord and the hand of the Lord at work. And it's all the more why we need to preach ourselves when they come along. I'm going to cry out to the Lord. I want to get the most out of this trial. I want to get the most out of this tribulation. As painful as it is, and as much as I don't want to be it, and as much of, as in, <coughs> in my <coughs> own reasoning, I would say, this is unfair. This isn't right. I shouldn't be in this place. This is opportunity to see the glory of the Lord. Therefore, I must draw the line in the sand and say, I will get on my face. I will lift my hands and I will cry out to the Lord because I want to see the glory of the Lord in the midst of these things. And you see this again throughout the word. I think oftentimes, and it's just an account that resonates in my heart, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These young men taken into captivity. That in itself was a trial, yet the Lord sustained them in that. And as they're there trying to serve the Lord in the midst of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, who early on in his life is a type of antichrist, later on he is a a type of a man who repents, but he begins to construct this statue. And he's not constructing this statue as a work of art for people to look at and admire, but they know this guy thinks he's God. He's constructing this statue, and he's going to force everyone to worship it. And they see their culture changing. They see this culture moving towards this one world, you know what, gathering together to worship this God that this man's going to set up who is not God at all. And that's a trial. In many ways, that's like our culture today. As we see end times things folding, as we see things, you know, going in a direction where there is more and more of a hatred of God, the word of God, and the people of God. That's a trial. And they were in that place. 
And then the next thing you know, this thing is erected and it, it's put up. And the decree goes out that on the playing of all these instruments, everyone's supposed to bow down and worship. And listen, that's a trial too. Because for everyone to come down or come to this plane for this to happen, that took a process and so forth. And no doubt that was weighing heavily upon them. And then in their mind, they're probably even saying, God, give me grace to stand. Give me mercy to stand. I guarantee you these guys weren't cocky saying, I'm not going to bow down to this thing. I guarantee you they were saying, Lord, help me not to bow down. I know what I'm capable of, Lord. Help me. Keep me upright. And all the instruments are played. And think of it. Everyone goes down on their face. And you see three guys standing up. And perhaps you got Shadrach here, Meshach over there, and Abednego over there, and they all kind of look at each other and nod and so forth. And you talk about the trial getting more intense. And maybe in their mind they're thinking, well, maybe no one will see us. And then the next scene we see someone snitching on them to Nebuchadnezzar. And again, snitches end up in ditches. They're snitching, though, upon them. Then they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar. The trial gets thicker. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to give you opportunity again to bow down. And they're like, it doesn't matter. We're not going to bow down. If you kill us, you know what? If God allows it, we're dead. We're in God's hands. So the fire, you know, is heated up seven times that Nebuchadnezzar wants to throw them in. And then as they're being dragged over there, the men taking them fall over dead from the heat of the furnace. And then they are thrown in. And in the midst of it, Nebuchadnezzar looks and he says, didn't we throw in three? And they're like, yes, three, check. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he says, why do I see four? And the fourth looks like the son of God. Listen, that trial that they went through brought them to that place of an intimacy and a vision and a closeness with God that they would never have had had all those things unfolded. And the same is true with the trials that we go through. That's why in the beginning we want to preach, I'm going to cry out to the Lord. I'm going to get an eternal perspective. I want to look at these things through the eyes of the Lord. I need His Word abiding in my heart right now. He says, He's my strength, my shield, my helper, all reasons to worship God And he says, therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song, I will praise him. Listen, we need to get this before us. Song, and especially as we gather together here to worship, it's not for us to be entertained. It's not for us to be warmed up for the, you know what, it's not the warm up for the main act. It's not to sit around and to think about the things of the day and look around the room and see who's coming in and going out and so forth. God wants us to gather together here to lift our voices up to him, to praise him, to honor him, to think about what's being sung and stand up or lift our voices and sing it to the Lord. And it's just my prayer as a church that we would become more of a worshipful people individually. And as we come and gather together, we would have an acknowledgement that he is the rock and outside of the rock, all other ground is sinking sand and he's deserving of our praise. And that's something that again, we need to preach to ourselves to do. And I think sometimes the greatest worship is, I don't feel like doing that, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to present my body a living sacrifice to God. Verse 8, quickly here he says, the Lord is their strength, and he is the saving refuge of his anointed. Listen, is he your Lord today? Can you say amen to that? Then you're his anointed. And again, he is the strength of his people The joy of the Lord is our strength. We want to absolutely come before the giver of strength and cry out to him. And he is our saving refuge. And listen, there's all kinds of refuges. There's all kinds of things that cry out in the midst of life, in the midst of trials that say, come and take refuge in me. And before we came to Christ, we all had those vices, those sins that easily ensnare us, our pet sins that we turn to for refuge. 
we turn to to try to find comfort. And yet in those refuges, life wasn't found there. What was found there? Death. And we need to be reminded again that he is our refuge. And he is not a refuge of death, but he is the refuge of life. Again, all the more, I'm going to cry out to him. I'm going to turn to the refuge of life. In the midst of all these temptations, and let's face it, in trials, in certain trials, those refuges look very appealing to our flesh. And I know that I'm not the only one in this room who has given in to those refuges before, even if it was just tapping a toe into the refuge and immediately you begin to feel the sting of death. And so all the more I want to say, listen, I want to cry out to the Lord. I'm going to fix my eyes on the Lord. I want an eternal perspective. I need to take my thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. I need to see this for what it is and take refuge in the Lord, the giver of life. And then finally, verse 9, he says, save your people and bless your inheritance. Shepherd them also and bear them up forever. Now, there's many that believe There's multiple applications of this psalm, and one of the applications is it's prophetic in the sense of David praying for the nation of Israel in the end times, as they are being persecuted. As we see in the scripture in Revelation, Israel will enter into a covenant with Antichrist, and in the midst of that covenant, at the three and a half year mark, he will turn on them to try to destroy them. And we know in the midst of that, in the book of Zechariah, In Revelation and other places, it speaks about God taking them out to a wilderness place and them coming to the Lord, and as Romans says, all Israel will be saved, and they are saved when? And this is awesome. Hear this. When they looked on him whom they pierced, when they see his hands, they see the work of his hands and they acknowledge it, they'll be saved. And listen, his people are those that bend knee to him. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We have salvation in the Lord in eternal perspective. Bless and bless your inheritance. Listen, you know this morning, he's our inheritance. And hear this, we're his inheritance. Paul praying for those in Ephesus. He's praying they have illumination of these things. In Ephesians 1.18, he's praying that they will know what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That we're his inheritance. That we're precious to him. And absolutely that he's our inheritance. Again, an inheritance... Oftentimes, people are in a place where they have an inheritance, but they haven't cashed it in yet, but they know it's coming. And listen, in the midst of our trials, we got to remember, I got an inheritance. It's mine. The day's coming, again, where I will fully partake in it, and I'm his inheritance. It's an eternal perspective. And then he says, shepherd them also. And indeed, he is the good shepherd who leads us into green pastures and by still waters. And then notice how he ends this, and bear them up forever. See the difference? Versus the wicked. And again, a lot of trials involve just people. And unfortunately, a lot of times it involves, especially if you want to live godly in Christ Jesus, a persecution against the truth. But the Bible says they're temporary in their life compared to the eternal weight of glory that's before us. And to know these people are going to perish. Let me commit them to the Lord and let me pray for them. Because, listen, they need Christ just as I needed Christ before I came to him. I need Christ every day. And then to know he's going to bear me up forever. So what's, you know, what's a little persecution here? That eternal mindset. Listen, this is the waiting room of eternity. It's like if you got a doctor's appointment this week or you had one last week. And they're like, well, your appointment's at 1 o'clock. So you know you'll be called in the office about 1.20, 1.27, somewhere in there. And you go in there and you're waiting. And you're in that waiting room before you get called in to see the physician. Compared to the rest of your day, 
Is that a long time? It's a very short time that you're in there. And listen, this is the waiting room for eternity. It's very short. It comes and it goes. Listen, there's been generation after generation before us who thought, boy, life is so long, and then before they knew it, it was done. And we need to remember, again, these things are momentary. They're like God's wanting to work them for good in our life, and we are going to endure with him forever because of the works of his hands. Let's stand up and close in prayer and worship of our God. Heavenly Father, we just praise you this day. And absolutely, we want to glorify you, Lord. And I would hope and pray, God, that, God, we could finish well corporately together today and absolutely lifting our voices to you because of who you are and your attributes and all you've done for us and the promises that we have in you that are yes and amen. Lord, any here today that, God, are heavily burdened and maybe in the midst of a difficult trial, Lord, I pray, God, that you would enable them and help them, God, to walk in the counsel of your scripture. And Lord, I pray we would take these things to heart. I pray as we leave here, Lord, the seed of your word won't be plucked out of our hearts, but instead we could walk in this and we could encourage one another with the truth found in this psalm and in your scriptures. And listen, today, if you don't know the Lord, today's a day of salvation. The Bible makes it clear, again, those that don't want to acknowledge the work of the cross. They don't want to give their life to the Lord. They are under the wrath of God. That's bad news. It's horrible news. In fact, it's the worst news in the world. The good news is, though, that Jesus made the way. He is that mediator between God and man. Jesus atoned for our sins, and he defeated our enemies, sin, death, and Satan, and Hades, to make the way of salvation to whoever as we talked about this morning, would humble their heart and ask Jesus to be the Lord of their life. And that means, again, Lord of the life, it's the Lord of our life. We're turning from whatever our Lord is and we're saying, Lord, you govern my life. You be my God. I believe you died and rose from the grave. Come and wash me and cleanse me. And he will meet you where you're at. Call him if you don't know him. As we close and worship, at the end of service, the altar will be up here. And listen, this morning, if you give your life to the Lord, I encourage you to come up and get prayed for. And this morning, if you need prayer for something else, come and do that. Let's bear one another's burdens, amen. Let's pray for one another, encourage one another in the Lord, and let's, let's lift our voices to Him right now because He's worthy of our praise. my 
strength be the strength of my life be the strength of my life be the strength of my life today be the strength of my life be the strength of my life be the strength of my life today and guys have a wonderful day in the Lord Jesus Christ and it is based to just shine upon you. Encourage someone, minister to someone before you leave today. Again, God bless you.